0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com.
2: Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is William Carroll. We'll talk to William about working in iconic restaurants, wine, and more. We'll taste a Chinon from the Loire Valley for our weekly wine sip. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. St. Louis-born William Carroll... Spent a little time as a kid in Park City, Utah, and then headed east and continued to grow up in Irvington, New York. William literally went from busboy to burgundy expert and everything in between. He did fine wine sales, studied at Le Cordon Bleu, and worked at restaurant Le Le Serre, he'll tell me later, in Paris. Before heading back to New York for a lengthy stint at Dan Barber's Blue Hill at Stone Barns as ultimately beverage director, William recently left North Fork Table to become the beverage director and assistant GM at Danny Meyer's legendary Gramercy Tavern in New York City. Welcome to the Great Nation, William.
3: Thank you so much. Is Very all that accurate? That is all accurate.
2: Okay, good. Um, all right, we're talking to William live from the Heritage Radio Network Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We're in the back in two truck containers. It's good to be back here. This is about our fifth show, and it's good to be sitting across from William in person. Um, William, let's talk about where you came from and where you are now. So give me a brief background on your life in wine and the biz, and how you got to where you are, which right now is Gramercy Tavern.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yes, originally, as you mentioned, from Park City, Utah, and then transplanted here to New York up in Westchester County. Uh, In terms of food and wine, there is no cute grandma in the kitchen story behind everything. Um, I come from Hot Pockets and Mountain Dew, uh, and was lucky enough to really discover food, wine, and restaurants uh, when I got to the end of high school. So first job was as a dishwasher and prep cook my senior year at a small restaurant in Irvington. Um, about a year and a half later, I ended up being a busboy at a country club in Fairview, Connecticut. That's where I first got exposed to any type of fine wine. And neither and,
2: one of those discouraged you?
3: <laughs> no, okay. I'm not sure why. I asked okay. myself, why didn't you, you know, run away at first sight? But uh, stuck with it and found wine in the process uh, early on when I was 18. Again, had a very uh, revelatory moment with wine at Fairview Country Club. Um, went on to continue school in New York City. Worked at a couple restaurants there. Um, ultimately landed at Restaurant Danielle when I was 19 as a buster and Barbeck.
2: Wait, go back for a second. Yes. The Country Club. The Country Club. Was there a guy, you know, he was either the maitre d' or the head of the dining room or a wine guy. Was there a guy who knew a little about wine
3: there was no guy there
2: was no guy was no so guy. where was that revelatory wine thing
3: yeah so there was not really a, a serious wine program there or Samale, the general manager i don't think was very wine savvy um, most of my job was filling buffets and dumping out slot buckets by the pool but there was uh, a lot of wine collector dinners held at the country club so it wasn't on the staff side but more the it. membership <laughs> side of course uh, a lot of very well-off members there, right? And there was a collectors moment collectors, think. big on Burgundy and classics and French. Um, and there was one pivotal collector dinner towards the end of my only summer there, where a glass of 1971 French wine made its way back to the kitchen. Was Bordeaux Burgundy? So at the time, I only knew that it was French. Uh, it was white, and it was from 1971. I found out what the wine was seven years later through a weird set of circumstances. But uh, I did taste this thing and. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever tasted. The doors of perception uh, exploded for me.
2: All right. So we need to check a few boxes. Yeah. So what year was that? That would have been... That you tasted that wine.
3: 2010?
2: So let's say right around there, up or down, yeah. whatever. Say 10. So you tasted a 71.
3: A sip of a 71 French Okay, white wine. And now
2: you have to tell us because you did find out what it was. Yeah.
3: So I found out seven years later... A, again, a weird set of circles at okay. Hill that it was 1971 Chateau Riusec Sauternes.
2: Oh, it was the Sauternes. It,
3: which makes a lot of sense for an 18 year old's palate to be that blown away. Yeah. It, of course, it was sweet. It had acidity. So was... It had Botrytis and complexity.
2: Was it dark at that point? Don't those get, you know, darker? Yeah, it was I mean, dark,
3: kind of honeyed. This is yeah. me kind of filling in the gaps when I was 18. It was like right. a sip of booze in the kitchen. Um, so I didn't take too many tasting notes then. But again, it was, you know, a four dimensional tasting experience in the first. Of my life.
2: All right. So I interrupted you. You left there taking, I think you said Danielle or something. Correct. Let's g- yeah. get me, you know, back to where we were.
3: Right. So re-enrolled in college at Hunter College on 68th street, found myself in the neighborhood of restaurant Danielle, um, ultimately had the audacity to apply for a busboy position there thinking I was hot stuff coming off my, you know, country club days. And I was, I was vetted um, and spent nine months there, uh along the way, or just prior to that, I met a French girl, a wagerist at a restaurant who <laughs> was from Paris. Uh, long story short, she ended up getting deported from New York. Um, and after doing so, or having, that having happened, she basically invited me to move to Paris when I was uh, 20. Jesus. So, moved to Paris at 20. You followed her. Followed back. her. Uh, okay. No real plans, just... Wait, I... My bad. She was working at Danielle? She was not. She was working at Match 65, Okay, which is she, where I was just prior to Danielle. She was in the business. Okay. So, so you, wait for you hit it off. Years you follow old. her back. Correct.
2: Um, instant decision or a tough one to make?
3: Uh, I wouldn't say instant, but not the most difficult. I mean, 20 years old. Were your parents like, what are you, out of your mind? You're not even 21 or they were okay? They had their doubts, but they ultimately believed in me. They okay. saw the passion I already had for restaurants and said, you know, give it a go.
2: Okay. So that's locked in now, the restaurant passion
3: thing. Right. That was, okay. that was it.
2: So do you go to France like, okay, I'm into this hospitality thing. How do I do it? What do I do there? What's your thinking when you go there?
3: At that point, I knew I loved restaurants and service far more than I ever loved school or college. Um, I had seen Restaurant Danielle, which was the first glimpse of a professional hospitality career at the time there was an amazing wine team of jesse and uh and caleb and raj at the helm and Edward, you know three-piece suits working the floor four Um, superstars and they were really for me like as a busboy the psalms were like the apex predators at restaurant danielle so i went to france knowing that you could pursue hospitality seriously that michelin stars were a thing and sommelier was a career so that was on my mind but i yet to really commit to that path
2: were these guys nice to you? Was there, Caleb and Edward and, I mean, were, were you just the lowly busboy or did did they pay decent
3: attention to you? It, definitely decent attention. Um, I mean, it is an old school French kitchen at the time doing 250, 300 covers a night. But so.
2: Danielle's sort of a good guy, so that trickles around.
3: A great guy, yeah. And uh, everybody that worked there definitely invested in younger employees and busboys. There was, of course, a lot of tough love and extremely high standards working there but at the end of the day i have memories of polishing glassware and asking raj uh, what tannins were or what the word austere meant and you know he spent the time credit to, to answer. Yeah. he said if you polish all this burgundy he was on a couple of weeks are. ago raj he was yeah. yeah
2: so we want to make sure because people are still probably downloading his uh, interview yeah that he's a good guy <laughs>
3: great guy very strong early influence and- all
2: right so so he's one of your influencers, mentors. 100%. Okay. Um, so you're in Paris now. What happens?
3: So I can't work there because I'm only on a student. Ah. I basically go to school. So I basically got enrolled into a French language school to study French and learn that. And that allowed me about six months leeway to hang out in Paris. So hung out with the girlfriend, settled into France, did that whole adventure, um, learned French in the meantime, did a couple of odd jobs off the books here and there. Um, and that was through the spring of that year.
2: Did you learn French or you got pieces of it?
3: I learned it. So I did 14 weeks of intensive French school there and okay. by living with her, uh, and working a couple of different odd jobs, um, was able to pick up conversationally fluent French. All
2: right. So keep going.
3: So from there, visa's expiring. I knew I wanted to stay with the French girl. Um, so we did the wise thing of going ahead to get married, uh, when I was 20.
2: I missed that somewhere. Yeah, it's not on my
3: LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, good idea. <laughs> um, okay, so go ahead. Right, so we got married again for the sake Stories of staying together and, and all that. Um, but I did have to Was come... it a visa marriage or was there... It was, I mean, there's a connection and we wanted to stay together. Okay, um, go ahead. But it was certainly for the papers. So I got hitched when I was 20 in Paris. Uh, came back to New York for about three months to basically sort out my affairs, get things ready. Uh, I actually worked at Dovetail that summer on the Upper West Side with John Frazier. Um Then at that point, I knew, hey, I'm going back to France. I have the papers of all the jobs and restaurants. Sommelier seems like the best. So that's what I want to pursue. So that summer when I was back in New York, I enrolled in the Cordon Bleu, um, which was meant to start in September of that year. That would have been September 2012. Uh, Finished out my summer dovetail, went back to Paris as planned to be with the missus and to start the Cordon Bleu. Uh, And then day one that I landed, we actually broke up. Uh-huh. So that was a tricky set of circumstances. Who broke up with who? She broke up with me. Because, and
2: what was the reason? She met someone else?
3: Uh, I found out after the fact that she did. But the explanation at the time was that it's not working. You went back to New York. Okay. Uh, X, Y, and Z. But I there I am like, in Paris. At this I don't point. want to sound like a dad, but that was probably no, like the best thing that happened to you. Uh, All right. So go
2: ahead. So now you're kind of free in many ways. You could work. You don't have
3: the wife. Yeah, well, free, but also locked in. Now I'm signed up for the Cordon Bleu for nine months. Yeah, I've been alone in Paris.
2: But for a second, do you say, "Crap," you know, I don't have the relationship anymore. What am I doing here? Or are you excited to be there and do the Cordon Bleu course? It was
3: both. I mean, there was okay. definitely it was daunting because I, you know, banked my whole future on this and told my friends there was an actual wedding and everything. Um, but like <clears> you're saying, I was free now just shy of my 21st birthday, or two weeks after, in Paris, ready to go to the Cordon Bleu. So there's right, so optimism you, as well.
2: So you do the program?
3: I do the program. Okay. I moved to, at that time, to Malakoff, just south of Paris, It uh, was a little commune there. I uh, got myself a, a, rented a room, and then did the nine months at Cordon Bleu.
2: And then, what's the, less? how do you pronounce, Lasserre? Serre. Did you work there?
3: I did. So that was the second half of my time at Cordon Bleu. You get enrolled basically okay. as a stagiaire in a different business. And I was lucky enough to land a three-week stage that turned into a six-month job at Restaurant Serre under Antoine Petrus.
2: So does that indicate they kept you on a little longer because they liked you?
3: They liked me, okay. yeah. I mean, I could speak French. I was a right. savvy busboy and I right. was ready to count and bottles. So. Awesome wine list there, right? Incredible. All right. What happens after that? So I did my time at Serre finished out at the Cordon Bleu, um, nine months of intensive wine focus, decided to go back to New York and work in distribution for a bit. Um, my logic at the time was that most Psalms leave the floor to sell wine anyway, so why don't I do that now? <laughs> That's a good idea. I uh, figured I'd get ahead of it. Sold wine for a company called MFW, which is a fantastic biodynamic organic focus book. Um, did that up in Westchester, but then ultimately felt the calling to go back to restaurants, um... Worked in a couple different places, worked at Murray's Cheese, and then landed at Blue Hill at Stone Barns when I was 23 as a SOM.
2: So that probably makes you the youngest. We'll talk about it, but you emerged to the beverage director.
3: I did. I know. think Hannah's got me beat by uh, a little she bit. She the youngest, but. We'll talk about
2: Hannah later. Yeah. Probably beats you in a lot of stuff. But <laughs> that's, that's, for that's for sure. All right. So Blue Hill, how many years? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. Um. I guess I'll ask you now, why do you leave Blue Hill?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. I think at the time I, I did four and a half years, and part of it was the intensity and the demands of the job at large. Four and a half years, there was a, a big chunk of time. Um, but also having the sense that if I, if I stayed there five years, it might quickly turn into 15. And I wanted to basically give myself a chance to leave Blue Hill, explore other opportunities, broaden my horizons. Um, so, it was so not nothing of, about them,
2: like William, maybe that. it's time. No. It was a career thought move.
3: Correct. Let yeah. me do
2: it now or, okay. So what happens after that?
3: So I left Blue Hill, um, landed at the Wine Spectator Project in Hudson Yards, where I was lucky enough to work with Michael Engelman, as well as uh, a range of really intelligent professionals. Michael amazing. had
2: left the modern to go to.
3: Correct. Where right. he wrote one of the most amazing ways right. I think, of all time.
2: And I think that's where COVID now takes a play.
3: That's right. So okay. March of that year, uh, I was able to do about four months at one spectator, and then on March everything shut down, and that was that. So
2: so you're dormant during COVID.
3: Dormant during COVID for about five months. Uh, I wouldn't say totally dormant. We got a puppy, and I picked up a, a jump rope. But
2: let's go backwards for a second, because I love Michael, and I'm curious yeah. about you. Do you think if COVID didn't happen? Michael would have hung around Wine Spectator, or that was a passing thing. You know, very corporate big. And what about you on that front, too?
3: For sure. I mean, I can't speak to Michael and his decisions, but he did love it there. He put a lot of work into that opening, which was immense. So he probably would have hung for a bit. Yeah. I mean, think for him to leave the moderns to go to that project, he was yeah. probably pretty convinced already. Um, so I imagine he probably would have stuck around. Um, and I would have as well. I actually got promoted to the Bar and Spirits director, mm-hmm. which I held for two days before COVID. Um, So I probably would have stayed with that group.
2: Did you have a relationship with Michael previous to that?
3: No. I'd served him once at Blue Hill, but otherwise, none. All
2: right. So COVID comes. You said five months later, I guess this is where North Fork pops up?
3: Correct. So I was getting kind of antsy. I wanted to get off the sofa um, and saw an opportunity for a beverage manager role with John Frazier Restaurants out in the North Fork of Long Island.
2: Was Claudia Fleming gone by then?
3: She was. So they sold the restaurant in it was December of 2019 which was great timing for them and then John (laughs) Frazier took it on uh, I think January February of 2020
2: okay so you just kind of missed her just kind of missed her because the final thing the funny thing is you wind up at Gramercy and she goes to their new opening yeah you know in uh seven years her first new opening all right so what was curious to me you were not at North Fork that long what happens there
3: so it was an amazing experience. My I joined there as a beverage manager, um, ended up taking on the role as general manager a couple months later. It was my first chance to really run a restaurant, work closely with the executive team and John Frazier and really build my chops on the operation side. Um, but it was definitely a taxing nine months. This is the height of COVID. It's the height of the enforcement from all sorts of...
2: And none of your history places you on Long Island. So what's the geography
3: of that? For me, an opportunity to you know, do well, something What about like living?
2: You were commuting there? Or? I was commuting. So, it's so that's a, taxing too. Two and a half
3: hour drive. Um, they had a room for oh me good. there. So at you least three hang. or four times a week I was driving back and forth. So. Okay.
2: so you're there how long? Uh, nine months. All right. So let's get to how, how does Gramercy Tavern come up?
3: Popped up on my radar in terms of opportunities. I was, uh, looking to move back to the city in the spring of this year.
2: So you kind of found that there were things going on there?
3: Correct, yeah. Reached out? Reached out. I reached out to Chris Raftery, um, who was the beverage director there, was still on the team, and uh, I've known for a bit. Incredible guy. And chatted with him, and he said, why don't you come in and meet the team and go from there? That so was it. I did that. Met with Jenny Guzio, Met with uh, Mike Anthony. Is Jenny now the whole group wine person? She is, yeah.
2: I know she was doing a couple of restaurants. I think her and Michael split it or something. Or...
3: yeah, I don't know what exactly the breakdown is now, but she is the corporate beverage director yeah, for yeah, yeah. USHG.
2: Um, all right, so that brings us up to current. I yeah. wanted to get through it quickly, but there was enough going on. Yeah. My favorite part of the story is you got married. Um, so let's go back to Blue Hill. You get to Blue Hill. No questions. It's a one-of a kind restaurant for sure. I mean, there's a lot of great restaurants. I mean, LaBernadine and Danielle are awesome, but, like, two French guys, you know, wizards are, you know, the chefs and all that. Blue Hill is this whole, you know, mindset and everything. Right. When you got there, did you realize how unique it was? And, you know, I think there were challenges because it's a pairing menu more than most traditional restaurants. And, I mean, did
3: you feel like, wait a second – do do I have the chops for this place? I mean, what what will you address those questions for sure. Yeah, I mean, I quickly realized it's a one of a kind place. Um, it's something that's been built for, I guess, it's twenty years now. And between David Barber, Dan Barber, Philippe Goose, kind of the key players among many others for building up Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Um, but quickly realized, yes, this place is different because I had my background at La Serre and Danielle. I knew what traditional high level French fine dining was. What good is yeah. and and traditional right right. And this was. A restaurant that checked all those boxes of fine dining but also broke the rules in every right direction and had a different spirit than any other restaurant
2: do you think that's what made it so unique
3: that spirit for sure that spirit yeah, of creativity spontaneity bigger goals bigger missions storytelling yeah
2: so when you saw the wine program i mean you didn't shit or anything because you were
3: at serre, but it's pretty impressive for sure right? it was daunting and I, I think i went into that job underqualified and Big props to Charles Puglia and Charlie Berg, the beverage director and head som at the time, for giving me the chance. Um, but that was a 2200 reference wine list. Whereas at La Serre, I was working the cellar work at the list, but I was still a, a commis sommelier, polishing glasses, running right. food. So I was in over my head for sure, but they gave me a shot. And uh, thankfully, I lasted long enough to actually learn that list properly and took it from there.
2: But both those guys left. They did. You yeah. know, as we mentioned in the intro, you became the uh, bev director. Correct. It
3: right? was about two years after starting. Um,
2: before we get off of um, Blue Hill, like we said, you walk into a, a, an awesome wine program mm-hmm. and cellar. Was there anything or much that you did? I mean, did you change things? Were there weaknesses? It's hard to push a weakness on Blue Hill, but. Right. You know, were there things that you were able to do once the floor cleared?
3: Yeah. Um, so it's important, I think, for listeners to kind of understand how Blue Hill works a bit differently than other restaurants. If you haven't been before, of course, please do go. But um, it is, in a way, a tasting menu restaurant. But rather than having a fixed menu, there is no menu there. And, again, I'm speaking to what it looks like when I'm there. It's been two years now. It's changed quite a bit for the better. But this is a restaurant where... The captains greet the table, they take dietary restrictions and allergies, and then a blank dupe goes to the kitchen, and every single table in that restaurant gets a different experience, both the order of the dishes, the dishes themselves, where they're going for a field trip. The entire dining room is one big crazy, or 20 crazy- field trip? You get up from your table and- Correct. Go to the bakery, go to the manure shed, eventually the wine cellar. Um, But the whole restaurant night to night is like 20 different jazz solos going on at once. So being thrown into that as a sommelier, we have to pair with that. It's like clapping to the beat of tw- 20 different jazz solos. So right. not a weakness, but certainly a challenge. I think the alongside that, it's a restaurant that, of course, champions all manner of different things. But one of them is local produce. Things coming from Stone Barns, from Hudson Valley, and a bit the beyond. The brothers
2: have a farm in the Berkshires, in, in the Berkshires. and they, have, they grow stuff outside right. of the restaurant. So
3: how do you square your identity as a summer beverage director when you've got 22,000 bottles of wine from all over the world? So that, for me, going in was like trying to find your identity as a psalm on this local sustainable ecosystem. So what do you do? I think you have the same conversations that the service team has and Chef has about selecting varieties for flavor, be it vegetables or grapes. You talk about uh, land stewardship, which I don't think there's a better example of than viticulture. Um, You talk about organic farming, regenerative farming, and and it's the same conversations. So once you realize that, once you realize that terroir has a place – With stone barns and with every bottle in that cellar you don't feel like quite a black sheep anymore
2: so we'll probably talk about it now and maybe when we talk about gramercy but these guys are like the ultimate farm to table regenerative you know all of that the wine list doesn't necessarily reflect that and i don't say that in a negative way you know, I think there's a lot of high net clients, collectors, you know, you got to have Bordeaux, Burgundy. Right. And I think this cellar serves that well. But there's also that other vibe. For sure. You know, that is consistent with some of the food served and the whole regenerative, sustainable right. thing. Yeah. Um, is that an area you moved a little more towards? or
3: I think so. And again, the ethos of a lot of the, the winemakers that make up the list, it does align with the values of Stone Barns and of Blue Hill. Right. Um, of course, there's a need to champion local wineries which Blue Hill always has and continues to do from the Finger Lakes to the North Fork. Um, I always joke that it would be an all local wine list Today we did a pop-up in Burgundy but until that happens we're going to champion great growers from all over the world.
2: Um, Jump to North Fork because you're on the North Fork Mm -hmm. where the majority of Long Island wineries are. Right. There's a handful in the south. Was it previous to you getting there and you being there an obligation to have a decent showing of those wines. Yeah. Or I, I, I mean, some are great, many are okay.
3: Right. And there's a lot of meh there. Yeah. I think there's an obligation for a restaurant like that, especially with what Claudia and Jerry built over the right. years to be part of that community. And and it is a community that's made up in part by winemakers. So the obligation did exist. Um, and it's something that Amy Racine, who's the beverage director for John Frazier restaurants, did a great job of championing and building out that initial list and continued to help me write it throughout my time there. Um so yes an obligation and an obligation also to you know pick the best ones um be it Macari or Palm Oak and the like. So let's really talk about that cuz
2: people love to hear from the experts of course which you are. Give me three or four wineries worth visiting. So you said Macari. Macari. We know Gabrielle. She's mm-hmm. terrific. It's a family winery. Palmanuk, Palmanuk. has been on. Palmanuk has been on the radar. A Couple other things.
3: Couple others certainly Channing Daughters, which uh, that's
2: has... Michael Anthony, the chef at your Gramercy Taverns, brother-in-law.
3: Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, but independent of that, happens to be one definitely of the most so, awesome and they make there.
2: more different wines. Skews right. you could they... call.
3: Break the Mold, and they do it properly. So Channing Daughters is a huge one. Um, McCall Winery, which makes really beautiful Pinot Noirs and has the courage to hold them back for later releases and really you know, show their whites. more. And then I would say One Woman Wines is another great one. Never heard of that. Yeah, check is it that, out.
2: Is that relatively new or it's been around but hasn't gotten?
3: I think about 10 or 15 years old. Okay. I don't know the exact date. One Woman Wines. One Woman Wines. They make great Grunewald That's That's delicious. a good
2: one, William. All right. While we're on this topic, mm-hmm. before we move to talking about Gramercy and all that stuff, um, let me get your take on a few things. Um, so we talked about you coming up and coming through the business. And like I said, you literally went from busboy to Burgundy expert. But along the way, were there influencers or wines? Like, are you the Burgundy guy? Like, I we've had guests that only worked in Italian restaurants. Like Audrey Frick wasn't on too long ago, a lot of exposure to Italian. So that sort of respect. What, what, what was your thing, you know, coming up? Or there wasn't one?
3: Uh, I mean, I've always had a particular affinity for Burgundy and okay. Northern Rhone and Piedmont, uh, Loire Valley, Beaujolais. Man, but,
2: you're speaking my language. Yeah.
3: So those are all, I mean, just delicious, vibrant wines that speak to place and have focus aromatically has always been big for me. But working in New York, for the most part, you've access to anything and everything. So there's... Never settling into a particular group for too long. I've grown to love Italy more and more over the years, despite the frustrations about how hard beyond it is to learn. And Piedmont, beyond
2: Piedmont. Yeah. I mean, do you appreciate Tuscan wines, Chianti, Classico? Love
3: Chianti. Montepulciano Chianti Classico is kind of you know right. our house wine. That's uh, the
2: Grand Cru guys. Uh, yeah,
3: which yep. is delicious, and love that. Um, and it's
2: reasonably priced, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is something we pour by the glass for twenty bucks at Gramercy.
2: So Eric uh, Asimov, who's been on, mm-hmm. has been a big. He talked about it on the show not that long ago. He did a story. He's actually going to be at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, bringing a seminar there. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah, their wines are amazing. But outside of that, I think the one big other region would be, would be Corsica. Corsica is a place where Charles Puglia planted his flag early on, um, and I've always championed as well, thanks to books like IPO and Enrico Ibanez. Corsican wine is definitely an inspiring So area.
2: Give me some makers beyond like Abatucci. Like what should we look for in Corsica? Because I think you're right. If people listen to this show and they want to try interesting wines, Corsican wine Goes certainly Corsica. should be on their radar. For sure. Give me
3: some producers worth looking up. So you named Abitucci, which is the big one. Um, I would say Eve Canarelli, another fantastic name. Spell Canarelli, C-A-N-E-E. C-A-N-A-R-E-L-L-I. Eve Canarelli, who's phenomenal. and then Antoine Arena, another great producer.
2: A-R-E-N-A. All right. Okay. So Arena. Canarelli, and of course, Abitucci. Abitucci. Um, And just give me a brief, you know, when you move towards Corsican wines, what are you experiencing?
3: So the white wines, I think, are the most interesting and the most, you know, delicious of them all. Um, And what's great about Corsican white wines is there's something texturally I always find with them. And there's this kind of this ripeness and density alongside minerality. But the wines aren't crazy aromatic. They're relatively neutral wines, Fermentino is a very dominant grape and Barbarossa and these fun Corsican grapes, but they're wines that have a a concentration and texture. That's kind of unlike any other. Um,
2: So aromatically you said they're neutral, but on the palate, there's a lot of
3: texture and density. And what's great about wines like that is they kind of be magnifying glasses for flavors. So from a pairing perspective, Corsican white wines are fantastic.
2: Those are good recos. Um, what about, has there been an ongoing legitimate interest even before Blue Hill in natural and sustainable wines? Was that something, and be honest mm-hmm. here, that was happening but not on your radar, always peripherally? I mean, it's hard not to talk about
3: those wines. Yeah, for sure.
2: I had a woman on last week, Cerise Zelenic, she mm-hmm. just opened a natural wine bar in... Uh, Bushwick around the corner.
3: Yeah, for natural sure. Wine,
2: natural wine. That's it. Right. You know? And she kind of went, you know, with producers that are not even at other. Right. So tell me, tell me, talk to me about you know how you look at that, and you're in the type of restaurants where it's not the easiest place
3: for sure. Um, so natural wine, it, it, coming through Danielle and La Serre and La cordon bleu it's not a huge area focus. Very right. traditional kind of, you know, to the point wine programs by and large. Um, but natural wine, of course, has increased immensely in the past decade or so both for its you know the attention it gains and, and the amount of fans that it has um, I'm one of those annoying people that say you know I like good natural wine in a way because uh, there's a lot of amazing natural wines out there but I think there's been kind of a problem with both the consumer and also the sales around natural wine that's done a lot of damage and I thought about this most at Blue Hill like we talked about there's a a big value on land stewardship and proper farming and regenerative agriculture. And there's this weird habit with natural wine these days to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, Hey, cause you added, you know, some sulfites to bottling all your farming and hard work and your 10 generations don't matter anymore. So that's a frustrating thing for me that I experience in natural wine. There's some inconsistencies. Inconsistencies. And I think natural wine doesn't get the same scrutiny that other wines do. Meaning that for all the people that I've ever had in a restaurant that are seeking out natural wine, I've never had them send back a bottle, whereas there's been plenty of times when somebody ordered a natural wine inadvertently, and they sent it back because they don't like it. Right. So
2: that that's that's an interesting take. Um, I'll come back to the question when we talk about you know about Gramercy because that's an interesting place too. Um, so we you gave me some good you know wine recos and tips and all that. But after spending all the years at Blue Hill, North Fork, um, currently at Gramercy, tell me about, and we talked about a few, but give me some more either off the radar or things you've discovered, like maybe things that you've tried that maybe won't fit at a Gramercy or something that you've tried that you've brought in.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say we've got great Delicious natural wine at Grand and something we're going to continue to include. But um, I've rediscovered Beaujolais lately. Um, okay. For sure. And it's, I'm
2: surprised as a burgundy guy, you're not on the bandwagon.
3: Yeah. I mean, I love burgundy, but there's also a certain amount of frustration that comes with burgundy over time of, of course, the prices, but also, you know, how many times you want to compare 20 different red burgundies that are all Pinot Noir and might not necessarily have enough fruit. So
2: Beaujolais. Favor any one of the crews more than the
3: other? Love Morgone. That's me probably a, a good one. Next, uh, Flurry. Flurry's great. What are you say uh, it's Give Caudibri. me a couple of producers that you... So I would say, as of late, the one I'm super stoked about is Daniel Bouland. Spell. Bouland is B-O-U-L-A-N-D. Okay. Uh, and I don't want the cats to get out of the back here, but Daniel Bouland, for me, uh, is making... Winds up there with four yard in terms of deliciousness and complexity and food friendliness. And
2: is he doing Morgon
3: and Fleury and Morgon? There's a bit of Cote Brie, Brie, um, yeah, amazing second okay. generation sustainable estate. That's Do you fantastic. currently have it at uh, uh, Gramercy? We probably have twenty five different references of it, like. He probably owns sixty percent of our total Beaujolais okay. selection. I'm in love with these wines.
2: And what you love and believe translates to putting it in front of the food and the mm-hmm. customer reaction,
3: right? Because it's accessible. If you're not pushing great, something
2: too hard. You like you got the right thing out no, there.
3: No, it still comes with the guest first. I'm not going to ever buy wines that. No, aren't no, great no. For the I guests. just you know if um, you have to
2: pivot, you pivot.
3: It's what I love too.
2: Did you travel much? You know, when you, did you ever do wine regions? Like once you started working, you couldn't do harvest as much, but did you do wine trips or you were too busy?
3: Mostly too busy. You have to turn down most of them. Um, When I was in France, of course got to cover most corners of France itself, Um, but had a chance to go to Austria when I was with MFW and explored the Wachau and the vineyards around Vienna.
2: Terrific wines, Austria. Amazing.
3: Right? Yeah. Um, so that was a big opportunity. Um, I had a chance to go to Corsica this year, actually. Oh, so you had a
2: recent trip. Good for you. Correct,
3: which is awesome. Because um, COVID
2: shut everything COVID down. COVID shut So down. after it seemed right, you got out to Corsica. Right.
3: So Austria, Corsica, uh, the North Fork of Long Island. <laughs>
2: Where, where would you love to go? Is it that traditional Burgundy trip and reach those guys or is there anywhere else?
3: I've done Burgundy quite a bit now. I had a chance to go to Lafleve and to DRC, which was okay. you know, so you've dep- amazing. Done that. Um, I'd love to, I've never really done Italy properly and never gone to Piedmont or Sicily or. So there's, you know, plenty Polio. Of,
2: there's plenty of places for you to go. For sure. All right. Uh, William, We have to take a quick break. We are talking to William Carroll. William is the beverage director at Gramercy Park Tavern. Uh, When we get back, we'll talk a little about Gramercy, which is certainly one of the restaurants and wine programs worth spending time talking about. Um, You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes, Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com.
2: All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, young William Carroll. William is the beverage director and assistant GM, whatever that means. He gets a key to the back door. Um, At Gramercy Tavern. All right, let's let's talk about your gig at Gramercy Tavern. We're not talking, just like Blue Hill is so unique, you know, Gramercy Tavern is certainly iconic. I mean, it is, one, the quintessential American restaurant. Um, It is one of Danny Meyer's oldest restaurants. And when you say that... You're talking over 27 years, and in the restaurant is, and certainly in New York, I mean, that's awesome. That's older that's than you, I think. Uh, so that's been quite a run. So, the first thing I want to ask is sort of general. You know, Danny Meyer has sort of created this vibe about how to run, run a restaurant. Um, he was the first to do the non tipping, he wrote a book right. about hospitality. I mean, what is it like to work in a Danny Meyer restaurant? Is that imprint, you know, there when you walk in or is it BS?
3: It's there. I mean, it was there for me. What, or- what is
2: it? I mean, you know, what what is
3: working at a... Danny, my, I mean, what are those things? It's something, I mean, it's a, a few different things. I don't want to speak too much for Danny or the company, but. Yeah, no, um, I
2: want it through your lens. Yeah,
3: for sure. And my lens is a good one because, again, coming off a more traditional old school French restaurant An interesting,
2: down, you know, selection of restaurants. Too. Yeah,
3: for sure. But there's something I got from day one of trailing of the entire staff having a great deal of respect for one another from management down. Um, of the entire staff being proud to work in restaurants and treat their job like a career. Um, That's something you feel from the get-go and has not let up since I've joined.
2: It's you have to keep. I think I got from Danny's book that the old way to look at it was do whatever for the customer. I think Danny realized if you have happy employees, they go out and you have happy customers. Yeah, and that's is that still going on now?
3: For sure, staff comes first, especially through this pandemic. um, Not only, I mean, it's in setting the table and it's been built in all those restaurants of treating staff as your number one priority um, because it makes good business sense and it creates great hospitality. That's something that's been, I think, magnified through the pandemic and um, all the trials felt by restaurant workers. And it's something that, you know, is very live and well today.
2: Um, Is it so much different than other restaurants? I mean, is that vibe and that focus prominent? I mean, I think think Blue Hill, they're pretty good about everything, but Danny has this, you know, ideal. Is it, it's part of the mantra?
3: Yeah. And it's much more codified from, it's a a pretty big restaurant group and this is top down. You feel it from everybody, from the executive team down to, you know, the bus boys and future sommeliers, um, that feeling of being valued, of being respected, of taking your work very seriously, of being a 51 percenter, of striving for excellence, that is perforates the whole company
2: that that that's great to hear because i think the pandemic shined a light on a lot of stuff that's not right with the business maybe we'll get to that later um so you have a chef there mike anthony who's you know legendary he's got he hasn't been there from the beginning and it was tom kalicki or something but mike's been there a long time um And you have a pairing menu and you have the tavern, Gramercy Tavern, which is more um, a la carte. Um, Let's talk about the beverage program. Again, lucky young Will walks into like this awesome, you know, cellar. Yeah. Tell me what you walk into.
3: So I walk into an amazing wine cellar, um, you know, that has probably, I think at this point it's 900 references, which is about the same as when I started. Spans the globe, very diverse. Um, Champions small growers, champions accessible price points alongside blue chip burgundies and the like. Um, The
2: champion small grower, does that go back years or was that a fairly recent development? This goes back
3: years and years. I'm not totally privy to the full history of it. but Right,
2: but there's something going on
3: there. For sure, from Paul Greco through, of course, Juliet Pope, who is essential for the industry of making wine more accessible and activating the staff. Small growers, accessible price points just non-pretentious delicious wines always been part of the dna there
2: is there a skew because it's like gramercy tavern and an american tavern is there a heavier hit towards american wines is it the classic bordeaux how does the the list shake
3: out it still leans probably 65 70 old world focus okay. on france and italy so nothing too groundbreaking there um
2: within france and italy is that <laughs> mostly bordeaux and tuscans and then a little piedmont or there's is probably
3: burgundy probably the biggest shake of things burgundy i meant um and then loire valley rhone valley bordeaux definitely there it's something i've actually tried to slim down a bit as of late um but across again france italy wherever there are, yes blue chip regions but also heavy representation of tavern friendly delicious wines
2: right um so you get there and like we said they're there like 27 years uh-huh. And that's about how old you are, and you come in. Is there an opportunity for you to put your touches on it? Are there things blatantly obvious to you that you know this has been sitting here, or the market sort of yearns for this? I mean, what do you? A- what do you have to do? What are you able to do? What do you want to do?
3: Yeah, I mean, there was carte blanche, of course, you know, keeping the likes of Jenny and Mike Anthony in the loop from the start, but freedom to put a creative touch on things and revamp things. Um, so in terms of what I walked into, um, the seller itself, again, is fantastic. And there's been a lot of great buying through Juliet Pope, through Chris Raftery. But we also walked into a cellar that had been kind of dormant for basically a year and a half. So the first look was to say, hey, where are these wines at? Maybe some of these younger, fresher, brighter things we bought on release and expected to so sell quickly are still here. So you kind of go through them, make sure that they're still sound and, and delicious and make it a point to, use those first before i go ahead and start buying a bunch of wine right it's a
2: good point yeah what made sense then is now almost two years old right it's
3: not fresh delicious yeah and they're not and
2: they're not like the vintage cellar wines yeah. they're you know the uh the wines that should be served on a And there were wines day.
3: that you know weren't quite tasting great anymore and we just took the loss and decided not to serve them
2: um Was there any area that like, Jesus, this place has no Northern Rhone wines or Southern I mean, was there an area that for whatever reason, I wouldn't say neglected, but wasn't where it should be that you were able to?
3: Yeah, for me, the rooms for growth and this this isn't necessarily because it was a deficit before, but maybe they sold a lot or whatever I walked into. So it's not an oversight by the restaurant, but Champagne, Beaujolais, Chianti all needed some love. So they got it first
2: you know champagne is like the hottest thing and and union square hospitality like martin Maolino, i mean these were Maolino's like champagne guys legendary right selection. but but gramercy tavern needed to rethink not rethink but to make sure the yeah. champagne
3: play flush it out a bit i do yeah. think champagne if anything's gotten too much attention in the past 5 years or so yeah um,
2: Well, it deserves it. It deserves it. Now it's where it should be at the table, and let's move on.
3: Right, right. They need some love. So, champagne, we look towards, and again, tavern-friendly, delicious things. Beaujolais, Chianti.
2: Is it fair to say Gramercy Tavern, even more than most restaurants, is all about a very curated beer list and cider list, and even some cool teas and all of that? I mean, is there as much there or more than you know most places? Do you feel, or that's you see it you know better restaurants i think
3: curated in the sense that the strategy is not just to buy everything um which is a, an easy approach you can make if you've got a budget for it i'll build a great wine list because i have two million dollars and i'll just buy everything it's curated in that sense of being selective of buying wines that make sense for the guest not necessarily the sommelier that's serving them um so in that sense yes and be a draft beer or, or cider very early on that front riesling things like that
2: but even to the point where you know Restaurants don't feel they have to carry cider or they have two no. beers or whatever. Is it important to have that curation, right?
3: Yeah, I think the curation is important, but I'm also all for having. Like right now, we have four beers on draft. There's nine draft lines, but for me, four is the right number. Okay, like let's more is not better. So let's have four that are local and fresh, and in sixels, and we can rotate them. Versus saying, "Hey, here's Makes sense. Nine different what's, oddball.
2: What's the beer. most recent draft beer you just tapped?
3: Most recent draft beer we just tapped would be, uh, it's uh, from North Fork Brewing Company, okay. uh, the Long Island, and it's okay. I may have bought it because of the name. It is called Hold Me Closer Tiny Lager. <laughs> okay, that's a good uh, and one. It's just a delicious, crushable, <laughs> but it is good German uh,
2: okay Pilsner. That's a good one. Um, by the glass, yes, is that important, and for is sure. that fun for you? I mean, are there wines that are by the glass that are not necessarily regular? Um, bottle list wines or both?
3: Yeah, so I would say it's kind of twofold. The, the standard by the glass selection of what we have on the list does lean on classic regions. So we have a Sancerre, we have a Beaujolais, we have a Syrah, we have a Chianti. Just great, again, approachable, recognizable wines and the best version of each category. I think that's important for by the glass of finding the best Sancerre. Finding is that the best.
2: stuff that you can buy
3: beyond what's in the cellar or it's usually... So that stuff is what we can buy what's beyond the seller because it's a very busy restaurant and we need a certain amount of volume to keep these on by the glass. Um, but in terms of things that are more curated and exciting and special, um, we started a program called Check the Chalkboard. And every Sunday at Gramercy, there's a little chalkboard behind the bar and it's got the GT logo. And beneath that, we'll write a very simple chalk glass of burgundy, $28. And we'll probably open up an old bottle of Fourier and just pour it by the glass for that day.
2: So you won't necessarily say Fourier. You won't say Fourier. You and and say that's sort of dealer's choice. You decide what correct. you want to put out. And it. it's a nod to And like it's usually cool and a good value. Cool and an incredible value. So 29 for a Fourier to some people, that's a lot of – that's what they pay for two bottles of wine. Right. But that's – pretty reasonable right it's, we're losing money on a lot right. of these ports right. um, and so it's, it's a great a,
3: way to champion amazing that's producers. just on sundays just on sundays all right, and so it's on sundays that's to right um, you'll get a good deal there and it's a nod to like a brasserie in france if you go to a get a steak tartare you'll see a chalkboard that just says aop Cote de bordeaux there's no producer there's no vintage, there's nothing but you know that it's gonna be a great glass of wine
2: very cool um mm-hmm. all right so do you spend time with Michael as far as, you know, the menu and the food, the seasonal changes? I mean, that has to influence current and future buying, right? For sure, yeah. Well, tell me about, is there a collaboration or a, a regular discussion?
3: Yeah, with him and the rest of the team. It's Mike, it's it's John, our chef de cuisine, it's Aretta, our executive Sue. And there's back and forth, very accessible both ways, from front of house to back of house. So there's constant talk. There's constant communication. Um, Mike Anthony's there at least five days a week, sometimes five and a half, six, seven, um, super interested in wine, super interested in service. And he's very involved on all fronts. So he's been great to work with and is able to lend me a lot of wisdom from his 16 years there as to how to direct the program.
2: Does does somebody order like an 89 chevel Blanc, leave a third of the bottle, and you pour a glass from Mike and bring it back? you ever do stuff like that? We have
3: definitely pour him a glass. He loves wine. Okay. Um, of course, he got the Channing Daughters connection, and right. uh, he spent his own time in France, so he, he appreciates great sips here and there.
2: Right. Um, all right. So that's Gramercy Tavern. Incredible uh, menu. Incredible wine list. Mm-hmm. Quickly about the menu. The back of the house, not back of the house kitchen, but the back dining, the room, dining room. room is- a pairing menu, right? Correct. Three, four, five courses?
3: Yeah, so it's effectively, in a way, it's two restaurants in one. You have the tavern up front, a la carte menu, and the dining room in the back, um, which is great because you've got to walk through the party to get to the church, which is what right. we, we like at Gramercy. I like that. Um, that's not my line, that's Danny's. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we've got the great balance of fine dining and a tasting menu and curated pairings and synchronized drops and clears, and then the tavern. So it's really this nice yin and yang.
2: The pairing thing. Mm-hmm. What percentage of people say, William, you know, we're doing this menu. We'd like to drink two, three, four wines. I think glasses would be the best thing. We're leaving it to you versus, you know, I really want to figure out a Burgundy and a Porto or a White yeah. and a – what? what what percentage of people do bottles versus nothing scientific? Right. Where do people like, – like I would love to delve into bottles, but I'd rather leave it to you and get that third or fourth taste. For sure. So where are people going with that?
3: I would say of the folks that are drinking, because a lot of folks go the non-alcoholic route, which is great. Um, of the folks that are drinking, probably 60 to 65 do a pairing. Okay. So, so it's
2: a higher percentage. Strong number, yeah. Of more – tastes leaving it to you or what you've designed we have a
3: you know a great pairing for uh it was 85 bucks now it's 98 so it's a very accessible price point for pairings
2: very cool all right so that's gramercy tavern um that's william carroll um when you're there you know he'll help you with everything william nobody leaves the heritage radio studios in the back of roberta's without answering our wine list five questions same five questions we've asked for right. almost five years first question is what are you drinking now and i don't mean the shin i mean what's in the fridge what are you and hannah trying and curious about what's at the restaurant that maybe is not on the list but you know you have a persistent sales guy and it's interesting you
3: yeah give me uh, some stuff the daniel Boulud Beaujolais i already mentioned okay that's uh, a great one what did you say? B-O-U-L-A-N-D? Correct. Okay. And those wines I cannot get enough of. Uh, Pepier Muscadet, always Ooh, and forever. My favorite. Um, those are probably the two big ones for go-to. Okay. Drinkers.
2: Now, Pepier Muscadet. there's the Pepier Muscadet, the regular, mm-hmm. I mean, are like the – do they make a Clisson or something? Yeah, they've
3: got the different Climats as well.
2: Are, are those worth it too? Are you good with the –
3: they're definitely worth it. What's great about the straight Muscadet Severmont is it retails at like 14, 15 bucks. Um, but I had a chance to go to Peppier. I tasted wines back to the 80s at the estate and they rival Rocher for complexity. So do seek out the.
2: I love hearing that. And I'm age a, them too. I'm a big uh, Muscadet fan. All right. So that's Beaujolais and Muscadet. That's a great answer. All right. Do you have either working in the biz, home? Holidays, do you have a favorite wine and food pairing?
3: Wine and food pairing. Um, I've always been a champion of Egon Mueller Cabinet Riesling and Cool Ranch Doritos. That's a good one, it's delicious. So, wait, the Cabinet Riesling, Cabinet Riesling, Schauschach Burger, and Cool Ranch Doritos. Dryer, or tr- medium, it's drier, but there's some sweetness and just guitar chord acidity to it. It's-
2: so, what's the match that all that?
3: powdery coating mm-hmm. all those flavors but there's the tropical notes you get with cabinet riesling out of the Mosul, there's always this like kind of kiwi flavor um and that playing off the salty acidic cool ranch doritos is a good sign
2: that's a good one i'm gonna have to try that let go um but i could use any cabinet riesling
3: any cabinet riesling I mean, that's
2: do. a good one but yeah all right Um, Between COVID and being sort of out of the loop, taking on a new job, you know, you don't get out that much. Um, But if you had a look at wine restaurants and or bars that you hang out or you admire because they have the vibe, they have the list, they have the knowledge. Yeah. Anything come to mind?
3: For me, Eli's Table it's a great on bet. The, is that the Upper East Side? It's Upper East, correct. Okay. Um, just for a great classic French fare and really killer wine list with good value. So the food is really good? It's great. Just per, I mean, there's nothing insanely ambitious about it, but it's quality ingredients, well-executed, and it's alongside a... a and I, I
2: know homeless. he's worked hard and tried hard to have great wines there, and yeah. he succeeded. That to do now. Out of curiosity, do you live up around that area, or no? So we live up in Dobbs Ferry, in Westchester. Okay. So because so, it's an easy answer if you live within five, yeah. six blocks. That no, will make the trip. All right, so that's a good one. Give me one or two other ones that come to mind. Oh,
3: To drink good wine, that's it. I don't get out of anything much as up I used in
2: to. West. That's part of the problem. Yeah, anything up in Westchester that you know? Do you guys ever go out and like let's? casual there
3: is i think we always bring our own wine up in westchester it's a bit of a desert for quality wine and somebody's got to same jump thing on that. with
2: northern new jersey uh, not the worst thing
3: but of course you've got crabtree Kittlehouse, house still is quite the seller uh you've got river market in tarrytown that's great good yeah that's okay. also uh glenn who built a, the program at Kittlehouse. um so a lot Lenizio's of- in scarsdale if anybody wants killer italian food in Westchester, go to La Nezio.
2: So a lot of people give Manhattan and Brooklyn answers. You're so busy and you're going south to north and right. back that you're not really hanging we out. We stay and, home. We okay. cook. Hang
3: out with the dog. And, All right.
2: That's good. All right. Fourth question is favorite all-time wine. Um, I am the most repetitious guy you'll ever meet, but I always say the question was originally structured and you've been around, you know, William, what was that rare, expensive wine that, you know, you tasted? I don't care about that. What's the wine that was either the significant wine in your life, career, the gateway wine, the most admirable wine, the most important wine? You know, yeah. is, is there one or two or is that too hard to answer?
3: It's, I mean, it's multifaceted as you presented it. And I think that gateway wine is, of course, 71 Reusect that opened up. Okay. And I knew of that would come and back. It.
2: And that is certainly... Uh, That's the answer, but give me another one.
3: The other one in terms of bring me to tears, incredible, (laughs) would be a toss-up between 88 Gentiles Derivue Cote Routy and Jackie Truchot Charme Chambertin, 88. Um, But Was
2: 88 a great year for those wines? Great. Okay.
3: For sure. Um, And that Truchot was the first time I've ever... The evidence of terroir was really proved to me with 88 Truchot Charme. But uh, favorite wine is probably... Uh, Domaine Dujac, Maurice Antony Blanc, just a village level white wine from Maurice Antony from Dujac. That's Hannah and I's favorite wine to drink together. So uh, I, I, I it's like that. favorite.
2: I'm just curious, you may or may not know, but retail, what does that wine go for? Is that like in the low hundreds or it's, is it beyond that? Depends on the retailer
3: if they're going to guard point. it and protect it, but I would say Maurice Antony Blanc from Dujac is probably. Eighty bucks.
2: Oh, okay. 85. So, so it could be under a hundred, right? So that's an awesome wine for that price range. Right. The maker is incredible. You're getting a region of Burgundy that's not the most expensive. Yeah. But
3: and it's a good example of reductive Burgundy done right versus right reductive for the sake of reductive. Which is tell
2: everyone quickly what reductive means.
3: So reductive winemaking is. In a way, it's the opposite of oxidative winemaking. So it's just a manner in which the producer protects
2: Don't the, some the people grapes confuse and reductive and oxidative?
3: Yeah, it's, it's they're easily confused, right. but reductive and a very simple explanation. Again, I'm not a scientist or a winemaker, but <laughs> okay. you protect the grapes and the wine itself from too much oxygen exposure, um, which in some producer's minds creates a lot of longevity and stability in the wine and also makes a whole host of very kind of fennel-like, licorice really seductive uh mineral notes um when done right they're awesome when they're done wrong it tastes like no right garden hose
2: um those are good ones i don't know if i mentioned but we post all your answers online oh boy because not oh boy um people look to guys like you for the best recommendations and so far i think you're doing an incredible job so relax will you (laughs) all right last question Best wine around 15 20 22 bucks. I need a red and a white. I always say you can give me a maker or a region. I always say Muscadet and yeah. you validated that as probably one of the greatest values as a region and then you said Peppier who's probably yeah. the king. So we're going to put that one anyway, but give okay. me another white and give me a red.
3: I would say head to northeastern Italy, head to Colio. Uh Tilio makes great entry level free the line maker. Of plants. Borgo de Tilio is the producer. B
2: O R G O,
3: correct. D I D I L I think, and then Tilio is T I G L I O. So it's
2: Dill, D-I-L, D I L, D or Dell, one or the other. Okay, I'll look it up. Give me the last part.
3: Uh, so Borgo de Tilio, great entry level. But oh, wait, T I L T I G L I O, Tilio. Tiglio. Tiglio. Tiglio, Tiglio.
2: Okay so that's your white that's going to clock in under 22 20 you know around
3: there Yeah for the entry level we get around 20 to 25 bucks Okay
2: a that's a great reco yeah. How about a red
3: Uh red for me the one in front of us got to say the Picasso chinon from Chateau de Coulaine so,
2: so and that could be our segue uh Les Picasse, L E S P I C A S S E S Chinon. Le Picasse is the maker.
3: Uh, Chateau de Coulain is the producer. Chateau Le Coulain Picasse is the producer. Is the,
2: the Lodi and soil type right?
3: The uh, okay, um,
2: and it is a Cap rank from Chinon. Correct. Um, and this retail clocks in at about what?
3: Twenty two bucks. Twenty twenty
2: two. All right, all right. Now let's get into this for a couple of let's minutes. Do it. Let's evaluate it. So every week we do a feature called the Weekly Wine Sip, where I strong arm my guests to bring in a bottle of wine to taste. Um, William fought me tooth and nail, but I said, William, I'm going to cancel the show if you won't bring a wine in. Quite the opposite. William's glad to do that, and William brought in a cool wine, which you know I'm glad he did and suspected he would. Um, let's go over it again, William. Yeah. Um, it is the who was the maker again? Chateau de Coulain. Spell Coulain. C-O-U-L-A-I-N-E. Okay. Chateau de Coulain. Le Picasso. Correct. And Shinan is what is Chinon the region?
3: Chinon is the region and a village in and the central it Lamar is Valley. famous
2: for Cabernet Franc. Correct. So we, let's talk about this you'll get into it but is yeah. this 100% Cabernet Franc? 100% Cabernet Franc. All right so tell um, me a little about the maker let's talk a little about the grape Chinon all that.
3: Yeah so this is run by the Bonaventure family. Um, they've had this estate um, since 1300s wow. in the heart of Chinon. Um, there's a proper castle on site. It is old school uh, central France winemaking. Um, it's since been taken over. Etienne was the father that ran it up until about three or four years ago. It's since taken over by his son and daughter, uh, and it is old-school, delicious, tavern-friendly Cap franc.
2: So when you say old-school, delicious, tavern this mm-hmm. is a traditional made wine?
3: Traditional. It's fermented in a mixture of large wooden vats, sometimes concrete. Um, all the farming is organic. There's no uh, additions except for sulfites at bottling, and it sings to... Testable in a way, pure aromatically precise Cab Franc flavors. All
2: right, so let's get into it. I want to talk about so color, it's pretty deep dark purple, yeah. right? You know, it's not very translucent, it's a little brooding. I mean, it's nice. The edges are pretty solid. Um, this is where I defer to you 100%. What do we get on the nose?
3: Yeah, so on the nose, you get the kind of dark fruited uh, components you expect with Cab Franc. So there's a, a crushed blackberry um definitely a cassis um maybe blackberry kind of hand pie vibe to it or Pop so Tart. the
2: hardcore black fruits yeah like cassis yeah, is in there no cherry and no that,
3: strawberry it's straight right black fruits
2: um not even dark cherries is that typical of most cab francs or this this you know traditionally made one or
3: it's typical of most the, of the cabernet sauvignon merlot or cabernet franc you're going to find these flavors um, there's a lot of ways for the winemaker to get in the way of that for winemaking. Right. But this producer, lots of flavor shine.
2: All right. I get all of that. I mean, it's a beautiful nose. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had it open. You opened it. It's been open in the glass. For it's, sure. It's, it's opened up. Now, mouthfeel, let's throw it over the tongue and let it drop yeah. down into the stomach. Um, to me, it's a medium. It's not this unctuous mouth coating, but it's not thin. Right. You agree?
3: Yeah, you can tell you're not drinking water. It's got a little bit of weight on the palate, right. um, and yeah, medium weights, medium to lights.
2: Yeah, medium to light. Right. And sometimes medium to light. Oh, that sounds bad. It sounds like no. no. This is it works well for this one.
3: Crushable patio pounder, delicious kefir.
2: Um, before we get to the um, palate, when you say patio pounder, is the alcohol? reasonable on this? or
3: we're is... at 13% for this. Okay, so that's... very reasonable.
2: That's poundable, crushable.
3: Yeah, with this kind of acidity, for yeah. sure. This is great. I mean, we can get the food pairings later, but yes. this is So let's friendly. go on
2: the palate. Does the palate replicate the nose, or is there anything new or different there?
3: You get some of the more aromatics coming through on the palate in terms of these kind of floral violet I, I, potpourri elements. You get the traditional... I got violet right away. For sure. You get this traditional bell pepper vibe, uh kind of jalapeno popper. Is that popper. bell pepper
2: is common in Shinon and Cow Frank, right? Yeah, the
3: Cabernet family that vegetal but in a good way. Which make for vegetable right. aromatics.
2: Um and the black fruits, right? Yeah, for sure. Um all right. So the palate's pretty similar to the uh nose, you know, with some yeah. more nuances. i right, what's let's talk about perfect foods to pair with yeah. this.
3: Um so for me, this would be great with if you want to touch on something richer that also has vegetal notes. So like a beef fajitas type thing or enchiladas would be awesome. Um, it's an incredible Sloppy Joe or a burger wine. Um, yeah, stuffed
2: peppers. Wait, Sloppy Joe and burger.
3: Yeah. Is Ideally this, at the same time.
2: Is, let's go burger for a second. Is this as good a wine as any for a burger or there's yeah other things way above it on the list?
3: This is as good as most. I would say to be a great burger wine, you want it to be delicious and aromatically interesting in its own right, but you also want to be able to slug it back with right. a bigger well, sugar and not worry about is, it. Right? sure, it's got acid, it's got you know interesting aromatics, but it's also a great background. Let me eat a burger and drink a glass of white wine.
2: Um, is this on the list of Gramercy? It is. Do we like this wine or we love this wine?
3: I'm thinking you love this wine. We know I love this wine.
2: I think I like it, too. No, I love it. I okay. love I love it because I love that it's on the list. I love that you brought it in, and I love the pricing.
3: Yeah. I um, also know, might add that I got to spend a couple weeks at this domain when I was in France. And right.
2: You mentioned that. Part
3: of why I want to bring today.
2: So this is the t- 2017. I right. thought it was even a more current vintage. The 2017 Les Picasso made by Chateau de Coulaine. Um, in Chinon and the Loire, and it's 100% Cabernet Franc. And William, if not gonna hold you to it, if we had a guess average retail ish?
3: This, I mean, could be 20 bucks up to 30, 35 okay. for more current release. Great value, right? Great value for the wine. A great mm-hmm. Thanksgiving wine, might I add. Why? On it. Good with turkey? Good with turkey. Again, fresh, juicy.
2: What's the biggest mistake people make with pairing wines? They don't pair it to the sauce, right? They don't pair
3: it to the sauce. And after Thanksgiving, you got to play off the gravy. And I've written a piece on pairing with Thanksgiving before, um, and this is a great Thanksgiving okay. Cap Franc.
2: All right. So that's a great reco for that, too. All right, William. We've blown past an hour. Uh, we got to wrap it up. Let me do a quick uh promo and I want to get some info from you and then we're out of here. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at the grape That's sam at com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. I'm on this big subscribe thing now. Just hit the subscribe button, alright? So this way when Williams Interview is posted as a subscriber. It shows up. How hard is that? All right. So become a subscriber. I don't know why everyone who listens is not a subscriber. That may be a little pretentious from me, but I think you should do that. All right. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. Similar but confusing, but you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation to get you anywhere. Um, I will post William's wine list and his weekly wine sip selection on social media. You'll start seeing stuff, uh, today or tomorrow through next week. We'll post our wine list on Insta story and on Instagram. And William had some great recos, so I'll make sure I cover all of them. Um, William, I, I forgot to ask you this. Are you even on Instagram?
3: I am not on Instagram, no.
2: Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're party. like a Luddite
3: why uh yeah you know, i didn't get into it when i was younger and at this point for me the ship sailed
2: so you got very old and decided it's right. too late I'm now not, okay i'm not touching it all right now gramercy tavern you could always go to website gramercy tavern right. google it it's probably gramercytavern.com or something GramercyTavern, gramercytavern.com um and on social media the same thing right correct
3: and that's where you're going to get our check the chalkboard every sunday right a preview check out the story on the instagram
2: Right. Um, And it's funny because on Twitter and Instagram, everybody has crazy handles. But Gramercy's been around so long that they were smart enough, like in the mid-late 2000s. You know, we have to register that. All right. I want to thank our guest, William Carroll. William is the beverage director and assistant general manager at Danny Meyer's Gramercy Tavern. Go in there, say hello, tell him you heard him on the Grape Nation. Ask him to order some good wine from you for you. Taste Michael Anthony's delicious food. Um, I want to thank our engineer Armin, as always, for helping us in the studio today, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.